Hello and welcome to the IPO Drop. Today my guest is Duncan Tatton-Brown, for eight years, CFO at Ocado and today senior advisor to the company. Duncan's also been a board member at Zoopla and sits on the board of Trainline, two other UK tech success stories. And he'll shortly join the board of Kazoo, a company we're fortunate to have backed through Latitude when it lists on the New York Stock Exchange later this summer via a SPAC. Duncan personifies one of the key reasons I'm so incredibly optimistic about the UK and European tech landscape. He's an incredibly experienced UK-based tech executive who's seen just about every angle you could wish of being a listed tech company, in good times and bad. There's no debate that Ocado today is a tech icon. It's not only the UK's leading online grocery retailer, but also a true pioneer in its use of technology and automation to create new customer experiences and a new infrastructure for groceries, the single largest area of consumer spend. With Ocado value today at a $20 billion market cap, it's easy to forget the incredibly challenging path to this point, much of which played out in the spotlight as a public company. Ocado listed in 2010. The IPO itself was a long way from smooth. The price range for the IPO was cut just hours before the listing, after which it traded down 7% on its first day of trading. Money Week reported the IPO with the headline, Steer clear of Ocado's dud IPO. When a company floats on the stock exchange, you need to be sure they can be trusted, not just to throw your money away. Two years later, in 2012, Ocado was trading at around a third of its original listing price. Today, you'll be looking at around a 50 times return on that 2012 share price. Last year, Ocado generated £2.2 billion or nearly $3 billion in revenues. It generated over $200 million of operating cash flow, invested nearly half a billion pounds into CapEx, including new business lines, which gives me the feeling that 20 years after founding, this is a company which is just getting going, or Jeff Bezos' proverbial day one. We're incredibly fortunate to have Duncan with us today to share some of his experiences and insights from the Ocado journey and more widely. Duncan, one thing which strikes me is before you joined Ocado in 2012, you'd had, if you don't mind me saying, an incredibly successful but quite conventional finance executive background. I'd love to hear about your journey, how it led up to you making that jump from traditional retail to Ocado, especially at a time when it was less obvious to the wider world what was to follow. Thank you for the very kind introduction, Julian. So yes, I'm a, a relatively experienced CFO. I have to admit, I've, I've been in business now for 35 years, so I've been doing this for a while. I got an engineering degree at Cambridge, recognised I wanted to get into business, and I spent you know, a good proportion of that working in traditional businesses, be them big or entrepreneurial, be it public or be it private. I was fortunate enough to be appointed CFO of a FTSE 50 company by the time I was 40. So I, I had a had a very good start to the career. And I think that time as CFO in that case of Kingfisher was the pinnacle in terms of my career to the date. But I have to admit, it wasn't as interesting as some of my earlier experiences. And I followed that by joining Ocado in 2012. Ocado was without doubt a risk for me. And I had a number of colleagues, ex-colleagues, advisors who, who were questioning when I talked to them privately about my plans to join Ocado because it didn't have a great reputation. And Julian, you've already touched on some of that. Famously, one of the research analysts covering the grocery sector, uh, his quote was, Ocado starts with a zero, ends with a zero. It will always be worth zero. But 
I could absolutely see how technology had the opportunity to disrupt sectors. And through the process of meeting the team at Ocado and particularly spending time with the founder of that business, Tim Steiner, wandering around the first facility and at the time the only facility that they're operating it was very clear to me that the journey that the Ocado team had been on was ultimately going to result in a business of quite significant value. That was definitely not understood by many at the time. The share price today I joined was 60p, and we've hit a high in share price terms of £28, although back at around 20 now. But it, it, it was clear to me that the capabilities that were being developed ultimately would win out. One thing you said there really resonates and actually slightly surprises me because you were making a mid-career decision, which friends were telling you wasn't the smartest move, but you were very drawn clearly by Tim specifically. And we're early stage investors, and this is how we see the world. When we're investing at seed stage, we're backing teams 100%. And even through our growth fund last year, we still back teams because we think the single greatest determinant of success is that founding team, the talent they can attract, and then all the things that follow from that. And even when Ricardo was public for a couple of years, that proved to be the case. It was you wanting to work with Tim. It's something you don't necessarily think about when you're a public company, the importance of the founder in drawing talent and the things that follow from that. Yeah, I I would definitely say that about Tim. He's an inspirational character. He's still incredibly active running the business, which is a completely different business today to the the one that he founded. Ocado launched back in 2001, just after that first internet bubble burst. And him and his founding colleagues had a plan to transform the grocery industry by serving customers, e-commerce, grocery. But it's worth just pausing for a second and saying how difficult that is, because the challenge for grocery is is quite substantive. You know, customers want to buy 50 items in one go, and you can't deliver 45 items, because if one of the items means that you can't make the meal you're planning to make for your family that evening, the service doesn't make sense. So you've got to deliver 50 items accurately. Those 50 items include products for freezer, product for fridge. So you've got chill chain issues. The average item price is a little bit over £2. The weight is quite high. So this is high volume, low value, high complexity, needing to own the infrastructure all the way to the end. So it's not easy to do. And the founders wanted to build a solution based on the use of automation, on the use of scale, and obviously, very importantly, on the use of technology. Carter was very early into the adoption of some of the new technologies. Because of one of the early learnings, it couldn't buy technologies from other people to solve the problem because nobody had tried to solve the problem. It had to learn how to develop its own technologies, originally by the writing of software, the interfaces to consumers, the, the supply chain software, warehouse management software. And over time, Carter got into developing its own technology. Now it builds, it, it, it manufactures its own robots. Carter is a big tech company now, almost out of necessity. And that's all done with a founder who was a bond trader for Goldman Sachs. Bond traders are smart people. They can work very hard. And Tim was certainly ambitious. He's certainly very smart. But he came to this with an inquisitive mind, a capability, a a focus and a determination, not stacks of experience. 
So really good skills and attributes that I think founders need to have. And he's a great example of what founders can do. You were very bold in the investments that he was willing to make. This is arguably something which is much easier to do today. You don't have to wait for audience behaviours to catch up. Interest rates have been low for many years, such that everyone feels it's the norm today. And so there's more capital, which is willing to support that path to delivering a consumer experience, which if it's great enough, and if the opportunity is large enough, the future's inevitable. How was it taking that approach back in the early 2010s, when the audience wasn't there at scale, when the risk capital wasn't there at scale? Yeah, very different challenges then. I think an important point to note here was, you know, fundamentally the grocery sector was largely served by the four major players. Tesco, Sainsbury's, Asda and Morrison's had a very strong share of the market. So not only did you have the challenges of, of accessing capital, you definitely had the challenges of people questioning whether there was really ever going to be any material market for the selling of groceries online. If Tesco's is telling its shareholders that Cardo will never win, it doesn't make IPO processes easier. As a little <laughs> aside there, it doesn't make it easier if on your roadshow, Amazon announced that they're launching a, a, a grocery business when you're in London, and then they announced when you're in Germany on the roadshow, they're launching one in Germany, neither of which turned out to be true at the time, but th those are sort of some of the challenges. So yes, it, it was difficult, but... Good management teams led by strong founders can find ways to deal with the problems and it makes it so much more rewarding when you've got through them. You came in in 2012. Where did you think Cardo was in dealing with the public markets, in telling its story, in getting them to buy into the vision and in starting to create or frame what its own success would look like because success was going to come over, over years rather than quarters? Well, I joined, and if I'd known all of this, I, I might not have joined, but I joined just as it was getting to it. <laughs> Frankly, it's its worst point. So we delivered just under 10% year-on-year sales growth. The operation was running at its extreme because the business had IPO'd two years before to raise capital to build a second facility. And the second facility was due to come on stream a few months after I, I started. The demand was still strong, but the operations of the business were starting to creak a bit, which was starting to impact on the quality of the service to customers. So you had slightly declining sales growth. You had slightly worse experience for customers. And, and then I think the reputation rubbed off onto a number of people, particularly at that time, our lending banks. And it turned out that it was getting quite tight with the lending banks. And so for the first couple of months, it, it, it was really quite tough. But to solve that, we effectively needed to raise, in this case, talking of a company that's you know, worth today close to 20 billion, we had to raise 35 million pounds from our investors. And with a market cap at the time of 350 million, and dropping slightly, if you want to raise more than 10% of your market cap, you're doing a rights issue in, in public markets, which effectively means you have to heavily discount your stock to get your shareholders to take it up. If we had to heavily discount our stock, there was a number of people who were betting against the card. They'd, they'd have made a, a killing and our core investors would have been unhappy. And who knows where that would have ended up. So it was quite tight for a couple of months, but we were able to convince some existing investors and some new investors and we raised capital at a premium to the share price 
which frankly we were told by our investment banks that's just not going to happen once we had done that frankly everything started to pick up we had the capital two months later we opened the second facility the second facility worked it took away a risk the share price doubled within that three four month period and there was the reversal of a downward trend into a positive trend but you know you that, that's an example of the tough times that you have to face. Getting through them as a management team really gives you some energy to take on more challenges, which we certainly did over the years that followed. It sounds like you had an almost existential moment there where the longevity of the business was in question. You've, you've had a lot of different conversations and different scenarios with public investors, and you'll be very familiar with how private investors work. What's the difference in dialogue, you think, between private and public investors? I think that the, the biggest difference is the private investor, to a certain extent, is more in the room with you. Often, as a private company, you have one or two big investors. They may well have a board seat. So you've effectively got the investor in the room. So what you're doing is you're involving your investor in your own decision-making processes. When you're a public market, the public shareholders are not allowed in the room. They're not allowed access to that information. They can't be part of the decision-making process. They'll obviously punish you if they think you've made the wrong choice, if you made the wrong decision. But there's a, there's a distance from the business decision. And, you know, there's pros and cons on that. It's a really interesting tension there, isn't there? Because when you're publicly listed, you are very exposed. Everyone can see the inner workings of your business, or at least to some degree, but at the same time, the investors themselves can't go as deep as when you're in public markets. So you've got people who are determining your perceived success with the share price, working off limited information, but the outcome of that being fully available, including to your customers. It also comes back to that tension on how, as a public company, you can articulate your vision alongside disclosing ongoing KPIs or metrics, which can lay a trail of breadcrumbs towards that vision. It's one of the stronger arguments for SPACs, particularly if you're a moonshot tech company where you're planning to continue investing heavily in R&D for several years in the belief that revenues, unit economics and in-time cash flows will follow. SPACs give more license than traditional IPOs to companies in the forward-looking statements they're able to make. So this, to some extent, helps bridge that gap between private arena levels of disclosure and IPO levels of disclosure. So we've seen companies in space vertical farming, solid-state batteries, and other technically complex, capex-heavy areas choose to SPAC. There are undoubtedly other reasons they chose to SPAC too, but the opportunity to give more detailed forward-looking statements helps perhaps bridge the credibility gap, which, as you say, is easier in private than public markets today. What changed over the years in your discussions with your investors, and how did you gradually start to win them over? Was there a moment where you went, I think they're finally getting this? Just to give us some context, before I completely answer that, it's, it's worth noting that this journey that Carter has been on and continues to be on moved from a, a company that wanted to serve customers and developed a platform, know-how, automation technologies to do that, into one that recognized that it could use those technologies and capabilities that it had developed to provide services for other companies who then could serve their own customers. That was quite a pivot. And the pivot took a while to demonstrate that it was the right choice. So there was two issues. 
one a fundamental challenge from lots of people, not the core investors in Ocado who stayed throughout this period and frankly have done very well out of it, but from the, the marginal investor. And therefore, that's really what influences the share prices is it, not your core investors, the marginal investors, you know, who's trading on the, on the day. So there was definitely some lack of confidence there just in terms of the scale of the market, but also in the, is Ocado going to sell its new platform services to lots of people? We'd done a deal with Morrison's, but would we sell it to others? The Tesco's, the Sainsbury's of the world saying that we didn't think that e-commerce was going to get big. So the big players, they're influential in the media and in the city. So there was a sustained period. And without doubt, as a management team, the pressure was growing on us. Coming back to some of these, you know, difference being a public company and a private company, what we couldn't say to public market investors was the detail of the conversations we were having with prospective customers and how far they got. So there's a data point you can't share with your public investors, which gave us confidence we were going to sell our capabilities, but created tension in the market. So we had this for quite a number of years, and then we sold the first one. And then we sold the second one, which is a bit bigger. You know, and I, I can vividly remember the day when perceptions changed. And what was particularly enjoyable about it was the day before I had been at an investor conference and I was being challenged by the Q&A. Like, Whenever you're going to do a big deal, you, know, you say you're going to sign more deals, but when are you going to do another big deal? And what they didn't know and what I knew is we were signing the deal with Kroger that night and Kroger were committing to 20 or more of these facilities. So it was not only a big deal, it was a very big deal. So in the morning when the share prices up, I can't remember exactly, maybe 50% in the morning, something has happened, the market perception has changed. Not that that doesn't create more challenges in the future, because quite rightly, investors' expectations are always looking for what else can you do. One unique characteristic of Ocado's journey has been the investments in tech, complex hardware, software operations. And as we've discussed at a time when markets weren't necessarily rewarding you for doing so. Just this week, actually, Ocado announced an investment in Oxbotica, a self-driving van company. How did you think about investing into building moats in this way? We understood why it was so important from the knowledge that we had of our business, from the opportunities that we saw that there was significant opportunities for Ocado to grow its value. If only we had more resource in technology. And Tim was ambitious for more, but frankly, the rest of the board, myself, we were all the management team, we were supportive of doing that, even though that created difficulties in how we talked to our shareholders, in our reported numbers, in how we dealt with the press. External commentators are very quick to pick up on this. And I understand that, but it is a little bit more difficult when you're reporting yet another loss. We felt confident enough that that's what we wanted to do. And we did it sensibly. We did it incrementally. And I think it's important here, referring back to your previous comment, Julian, selling a story is very important. So we were only doing it because we had a story that we absolutely believed in. We believed in it then. We still believe in it now. We thought we had great opportunities ahead. So we believed in that vision. And we sold that vision. Increasingly, we tried not to create too many shorter term expectations around that because people don't like disappointments. So don't promise too much in the short term, but sell a vision for the long term whilst continuing to give enough data points to our investors so that they could have more confidence in that vision. Whether that data point is, in a Carlos case, examples, demonstrating how loyal our customers were. 
you put up a graph which demonstrates how loyal the customers are. People then recognize that there's a cash generating machine based on your retail customers because they're so incredibly loyal. It's by finding metrics that you continue to report year after year. So even though it's not a profit metric, it's some other KPI which helps demonstrate why you're getting better. For us, it was an operational efficiency a couple of metrics, which we just kept on improving and improving and improving. Because if you demonstrate that customers love you, you demonstrate your economics are getting better long-term, it doesn't matter if our technology cost is going up because long-term will we'll clearly be a winner if we can continue to retain and serve customers well and do it more and more efficiently at an operational level. So that's how we kept people's faith through well, I'm going to say tough times financially, but I, I, I would be lying and saying that we didn't notice what others doing, notably here, Amazon. And I don't want to compare Ricardo to Amazon because Amazon is you know, a completely different league. But you should consider what helped make Amazon successful and what you can learn. And one of the lessons, I think, is Amazon did not create high expectations of profitability short term. It told its shareholders, don't expect profit short term because we're looking for long term value. And as a result, it's had the mandate, the opportunity to look to generate longer term value. And I, I think we at Ocada, we try to, in a little way, follow a bit of that. But it meant as a management team, we had to be robust enough to see through it and believe in our own vision. It's something we talk about all the time with founders we back much, much earlier stages, which is defining your metrics, defining your success. When you know, the path to traditional metrics, when the path to cash flow profitability may be years out, define your own success so people quarter over quarter or whatever time period can see that you're traveling in the right direction and you can see the path from that through to cash flow, which is obviously whatever everyone's judged on eventually is really critical. All, all of the big companies that I had previously been on the board of None of them were run by a founder. It was professional management. And let's look at the incentives for professional management. I was one of them. There's a greater focus on avoiding the punishment than there is on the reward. Therefore, I think a lot of large public companies, you know, their model, and this, by the way, is not a bad model, is I want a 90% chance of, let's call it, a 15% return. Because that's 10 plus percent return on average. That's a good return. Because what I don't want to do is I don't want to make a decision, make an investment, do something that really blows up in my face because then I'm going to be at risk because the shareholders are going to punish me, particularly if I'm valued on a multiple. Because if I'm valued on the multiple and my profits are down 20% this year, the share price is down 20% this year. So there's a conservatism that gets built into it. I think that's one of the things that certainly for me, going from CFO of a large company making 600 million of profits to a company making losses, is actually there's a freedom when you're making losses because they can't punish me if my profits are 10 million low at the end of the year based on profits. They can punish me if we're not doing the right thing, if there's a metric in our business that isn't moving the right way. But if we make another investment and it's not working perfectly or not working perfectly yet, I don't get punished. So I think at Ocado, we were much more willing to make investments that might only have a 50% return, 50% chance of a 30% return. But you do the maths and that's actually a better return. And actually, I think there were higher than 50% chance. 
are there more likely 75% chance, but who were much more willing to do things that were risky. And often, by the way, they didn't deliver what they promised at the time they said that, that, that we hoped they would. Often the benefits took longer, but by being willing to take those risks, as long as you are making improvement and as long as you believe that you get the benefits in the long term, generally we got the acceptance of that. So I, I definitely think there's something in the, the style of management. And I do think the founders of businesses keep some of that founding mentality if you go public, because you don't want to lose that. You don't want to get worried about making the wrong decision just to hit these years numbers. Make the right decision for the long-term value and, frankly, get the right investors who are willing to take some bumps in the road. How do you keep the team comfortable that they're able to lean into risk and not be judged internally against it? I think cultures matter. The founders have a, a real opportunity here because founders, as, as we touched on earlier, it can be quite influential in building the team. But this, I think, is more in hindsight looking back rather than I was completely aware of it at the time. But some of the things that we did at Ocado, that Tim had us do at Ocado, were were part of the real strength. So Ocado was doing something new. And therefore, if something went wrong, the natural inclination was was not from Tim. Oh, I've got to fire that person because something's gone wrong. Tim was much more willing to say is the failure a great learning opportunity? Obviously, you don't want people to fail and do it by doing the same thing wrong twice. But more often than not, it was because we were trying something new. So if it didn't work perfectly, well, we've learned something there. So let's let's take it forward. That was one thing. I, I think another thing was having a tight team. We used to spend two hours on a Monday morning, all the executives together had a meeting with no agenda. Uh, and that's definitely not efficient use of management time in, in many ways, but except it was. It meant that we went wherever we wanted to. The, the bait was, sometimes it was frankly just a good chat, but it meant that we were very close together as a team. We all sat in the same office together. So we all had a basic understanding of whatever was going on, whichever area of our responsibility. Uh, and therefore, when the tough times were there, we, we were all in it together. We stuck at it together. There was no sort of critiquing. There was no backstabbing. There was no politics in that way inside the business. And I think that was, was also a, a big strength of the culture, led obviously by Tim as founder, because to a certain extent, that's what he wanted to do. You mentioned team. But within the team, the CEO-CFO relationship is absolutely critical to the success of a public company. Could you just talk about your and Tim's relationship, how that worked, how it evolved, and what roles you played internally as well as externally? Yeah, I do believe that the role of CEO is a pretty lonely role because the buck stops with you. You're the ultimate decision maker. Even as a public company with the public company board, it's quite a lonely role. I think the CFO is arguably in quite a unique position to be a good sparring partner for the CEO. The CFO typically doesn't really have a budget. They help set the budget for the business, but they're not one of the big spenders. So they're, as it were, independent in that way. And they're not responsible for any part of the operation typically either. So they have a sort of a whole company view without a bias, because some of the CEO's other reports might be arguing for the marketing budget or arguing for the technology budget or whatever it might be. So that independence, I think, is useful. And I hope, I do believe, Tim and I had a very good relationship. We still have a good relationship. And and I can challenge him. 
Now, you do not want a CFO who wants to challenge the CEO so much. Effectively, they really want to be CEO themselves. If you want to be CEO yourself, go off and be CEO, but don't try and take the boss's job from them. But do stand up to him or her. Do be the sparring partner in a private room. Publicly, you need to be tied at the hip, even if you actually don't really agree with the CEO. Once you've had your private debate with him, publicly, you completely support whatever he's saying. And I would encourage any of you running your own business at the right time, and definitely when you get to be a public company, you need somebody who you can give the space to that you can accept them challenging you. You can certainly provide credibility as a good CFO externally, because let's be clear, investors want to know there's somebody there challenging the, the CEO. They want to know there's somebody protecting their interest, reining in excesses if there were any, because teams are often better than the, the individual themselves. We get asked so often by companies that call it growth pre-IPO stage, what kind of CFO should I have in place when should it look more FD, should I look more strategic? And what you just described is the best answer I've ever heard. So you've operated in public companies in the UK for decades now, and you're joining the board of a UK-based company serving customers of the UK, but has chosen public in the US. And the founder of that company, Alex Chesterman, that company being Kazoo, was previously founder of Zoopla, which you sat on the board of, another UK company serving UK customers, which went public in the UK. What's your observation on why companies like Kazoo or previously Farfetch are choosing to go public in the US rather than the UK? What are the, the core issues as you see them and are they resolvable? And if so, how? I'm joining the board of Kazoo when it actually lists. So, And I haven't been in the decision-making process of uh, go through a SPAC route rather than list in, in the UK. So this is my interested observer observations rather than with any detailed knowledge. I, I do think there's something important here, which you touched on earlier yourself, Julian, which is the SPAC process, particularly for earlier stage company, has, has perhaps some advantages. And, and Kazoo has been trading for, let's call it about 18 months. So it's a relatively new company. Uh, and the SPAC process, which is at the moment, not, as far as I'm aware, available in the UK and, and not easily available in Europe. It, it's certainly helpful. In Kazoo's case, I think the benchmarks in the US are helpful for a US listing. So I think those are two of the, the primary considerations. I suppose for UK PLC, we should consider, is there a downside for this of UK-based companies listing overseas? But I do think it would be helpful for UK PLC to have more investors willing to invest for the long term in, in the way that the US market has a greater prevalence. And there are not enough bigger investors, I think, in the UK to make it as attractive a place for a technology company very early stage to list. And that doesn't, by the way, mean if you're a technology company, don't list in the UK, because I think it depends very much on your business. There's too many specifics to say don't invest in the UK. But I think it would be better if we had more investors willing to support those type of business. Perhaps you'd come and join us again in a year or two's time when you sat on the board of a US listed company and tell us where we're going wrong over here, because it feels like a negative for the UK tech ecosystem on some level that it's not going public in the UK. Thank you so much for taking the time. The authenticity and the humbleness of the insights you shared is just incredibly impressive.
given the huge achievements that sits behind them. I think the one thing which I really took away from this is a lot of the issues that you've dealt with over the last few years at Ocado are very similar to the issues which our founders at startup and scale-up phase are dealing with, just on a slightly different stage, often talking to a slightly different audience, but still fundamentally similar. And I think that reinforces one point which which is often lost in this, and we call this you know, the IPO drop, that an IPO is just a funding event. It's an orderly transition of shares. You're not a fundamentally different business the next day. It's just a different set of constituents you're talking to. So thanks so much, Duncan. Julian, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for your question.